Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohash and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And by Yulia Zhoja, senior fellow, but at the Middle East Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Ulrike Franke, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, where she leads its Technology and European Power Initiative. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Julia, I want to start with you. Um, so although this is going to be ancient history by the time this podcast is released or, or by the time it drops, as they say these days, um, Olaf Scholz is headed to Washington today for what seems to be a consequential visit, meeting with President Biden. Uh, what's your read of the situation? What's the prospect of, of this visit addressing um, the seeming drift in, 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 in transatlantic relations, especially the, the US-German relationship. So I have a lot to say about that, but uh, I, I'll refrain um, from, from commenting and let um, Ulrike, who is um, today our sort of German representative on the Eastern Front, um, talk about that. But until then, I guess framing the piece of news is, um, as you pointed out, um, Dalibor, um, the first visit of Scholz as um, Chancellor of Germany to the United States, but a visit that is quoted as one of the most important ones in decades in the bilateral relationship and it being all about Russia and Ukraine. Um, And in this context of this visit, the big question on everybody's minds um, on uh, both sides of the Atlantic is the question of German reliability. Um, Arms exports have been a central part of this question. Berlin refuses and even blocks arms exports to Ukraine, quoting arms export policies. Um, Yet Berlin uh, delivered and trained Russian militaries years after Moscow, for instance, invaded Georgia. The other big issue um, on the table and has been on the table in the bilateral relationship is energy. Nord Stream 2 sums it up pretty well, though let's not we forget about Nord Stream 1. Germany is dependent on Russian gas and basically has refused to pay a higher pr- price for gas um, and to decouple from Russia, quoting again great historical experiences with the Soviet Union, though Russia has weaponized energy in Europe since 2006, if we look at Ukraine. Um, and now the United States is, I guess, searching the globe for, for alternative um, resources for energy and tries to convince Germans and other Europeans to decouple from Russia while Russia could leave the continent in the cold. And so um, I'm turning to you, Ulrike, to help us make sense of all of that. You um, work on, for many years now, on German and European security and defense, the future of warfare, very uh, up-to-date in in this um, discussion. Uh, And you've written recently a piece about, um, about exactly this issue, arguing in the Washington Post that Germany isn't turning its back on its allies, um, but rather that um, uh, that we should understand it differently. Um, and you have also pointed out um, something that I think is is uh, telling of the differences between the two sides, I guess, um, and that is um, Berlin decided.
decided to send 5,000 helmets to Ukraine, and it was deemed by some Germans as saber-rattling. You point that out. On the other hand, Vitaly Klitschko, mayor of Kiev and German connoisseur, trolled Germany asking that next time Berlin should send uh, Kiev a bunch of pillows. Help us make sense of um, Berlin's relationship to Ukraine and to Russia when it comes to weapons and more. Yes, well, first of all, thank you very much for, for having me. It's a, it's a great pleasure to discuss these things with you. Um, yes, yeah, so what I try to do in this, in this Washington Post piece that you refer to is basically to explain the German thinking, not necessarily justify the German politics or policies. So um, I've, I've been critical of, of elements of the way that the current German government, which incidentally is rather new, um, have handled the current crisis. But I do feel that part of the criticism that we've seen, especially coming from the US um, and then from Eastern Europe, has been either exaggerated or kind of comes from a little bit of a misunderstanding. And that's basically, that was basically my, my starting point. So it's true that we've seen um, these news reports, uh, again, primarily in the US and in, in Eastern Europe, that basically said Germany is no longer a reliable ally. And the main point of criticism was the fact that Germany does not want to export arms, uh, lethal weapons, to Ukraine, despite the fact that um, Ukraine has asked Germany to do so. I have to say the fact that the German government decided not to do that, and indeed even, um, at least until today, this may still change, but, but has forbidden, for example, Estonia to export older German weapons, weapons that initially came from Germany, but are in Estonians' uh, arsenals for, for decades. It has forbidden Estonia to, um, to export those to Ukraine as well. The fact that this government has decided um, on, this, on this stance isn't surprising in and of itself. Why? Because it is true that there are these political rules. I mean, these, these are self-given political rules, right? This is, this is an international yeah. law, but Germany for, for many years actually has the self-given rules that it doesn't export weapons into um, uh, conflict zones. Now, admittedly, I'm going to say right away that they aren't always followed 100%. <laughs> and there was a big discussion about the Peshmerga. There, there's a big discussion about, you know, exporting weapons to the Middle East. Um, so, so, of course, you know, there's already some criticism there, but it is true that that's kind of an, an important role to begin with or rule to begin with. And importantly, we do have this new German government, um, which is more left-leaning than the one before. And within this German government, we have in particular the Greens that have been very vocal um, on arms exports um, already in the past and basically, yeah, set out to say we should limit arms exports to begin with. Um, they put it in the coalition agreement that there should be a more restrictive arms control policy. They want to Europeanize that as well. So so all this basically says that I'm not really surprised that they, that they went down this path. Um, I think what is important and kind of my main criticism of the way that the German government has handled this so far is that Exporting lethal weapons is one way, definitely, to signal support to Ukraine and to help Ukraine build up its its capabilities, its military capabilities, and build up its deterrence toward, towards Russia. It's just that there are indeed also other ways of, of doing that, and definitely other ways of showing support. And actually, Germany has been doing uh, quite a few important things from 
financial support. Actually, it's the most important um, financial supporter of, of Ukraine and has been for many years. And two things like helmets, you mentioned this, the field hospital, things like that. So so here I kind of see a problem of of communication, I, I almost um, want to say. So yeah, I think that that was the starting point of my kind of thinking. And um, I can go into kind of, you know, German thinking on, on Russia in, in more detail in a, in a second, but maybe let's, uh, yeah, break here. Um, in, in some ways, uh, the, the greens strike me as, as as the most interesting part of this of this new government coalition in Germany. Uh, there is obviously this long-standing commitment to human rights and a liberal form of internationalism in the um, in the Green Party, which makes them seemingly more hawkish on questions, you know, such as China and Russia. Yet. Uh, I mean, there's also a sort of degree of sort of traditional distrust of 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 America, and uh, and also I'm not sure how much of a sort of strategic thinking there is going on, you know, on questions like you know getting rid of nuclear power, which in turn makes Germany more dependent on Russian natural gas, and also this sort of pacifistic sort of precepts that that characterize sort of you know Germany's social contract post Second World War. How much of a debate there is in the Green Party and how much uh, especially these these developments in Ukraine have have sort of shaped the conversation both both in the Green Party and in the wider coalition, I guess is is the sort of interesting question that that Americans don't really have a good handle on. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Great question. So we have a, a three-party coalition at the moment, which is unusual for Germany. Normally you have two parties. So this makes this harder to begin with. It's led by the Social Democrats, so the kind of central left um, party. So the Chancellor Olaf Scholz is from the Social Democrats and the Greens is the second biggest um, party. The Liberals are the third. Um, and indeed, the Greens, um, they are interesting, A, because of what you said, and also importantly, because they have the foreign office, right? Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, is from the, the Green Party. And she's been more visible in this whole crisis than Olaf Scholz, than the chancellor, which is an interesting change, by the way, from the Merkel government, right? Because under Merkel, Angela Merkel actually did a lot of the foreign policy stuff. Um, and right now, Olaf Scholz has been, yeah, less visible, but of course he's he's on its way or in uh, DC at the moment. So so maybe that is, that is going to change. The Greens are... Interesting and so far, as I do agree with, with what you just lined out, um, that they take a rather strong position on human rights and international law and are indeed, I mean, hawkish in a German context means something very different <laughs> from anywhere else. But um, they are kind of, they, they have a more muscular rhetoric when it comes to, um, for example, Russia and China, exactly on the basis of, you know, human rights abuses, freedom of the press, etc. What... Um, I find what could possibly be a bit problematic is that on the one hand, they do that, which I think is a you know fair and clear and, and, and possibly good position to take. But because they're coming out of a kind of peace movement um, uh, background, they are very critical of all things military. And why is that a problem? Well, because I would argue that geopolitical power, at least in parts, is based on military power as well, right? I mean, geopolitical power has many um, has many inputs, economic power being one of them, and of course, Germany is, is economically strong. But if you want to take strong positions in geopolitics, 
it kind of helps if you are strong on all fields of, of geopolitical power, including the military one. And the Greens aren't thinking in that way. And so there's a bit of a bit of a bark but no bite behind it um, um, thing going on. I worry um, here that if you, you know, you, if you take really strong positions towards strong players, but then aren't really willing to just kind of back it up, um, that could be problematic and that's kind of my my um uh, fear in in that uh, in that uh, context you know i'm struck by the this uh, green party conversation uh, i'm older than everybody else um but i do remember very vividly how uh, out front and uh, how important Joschka fisher's voice was during the balkan wars of the 1990s in many ways he was sort of uh, at least from an American point of view, um, the best interlocutor uh, in Germany. So I wonder if there are other uh, factors at play. And I, I was particularly struck by an article, Ulrika, that you wrote last spring uh, about the change of generations. I mean, this is a younger as well as a new German government. Uh, you know, uh, you talked very uh, uh, vividly about the the generation of millennials that are sort of now coming to power. Uh, what role do you think that has to play in where we are right now? Yeah, so your reference to Joschka Fischer is really interesting. So that was another German um, foreign minister um, uh, who was foreign minister, especially during the, the late 90s um, uh, Kosovo crisis. And and uh, and I actually remember, um, I, I seem to remember that he, when he kind of justified Germany getting involved in, in the NATO operations actually did justify this also by reference to German history, right? Um, and, and Annalena Baerbock just did the same, but in the kind of opposite way. So Annalena Baerbock basically said, basically justified the German current policy, again, especially the non-export of arms, by saying this is born out of, of German history and we have a kind of special... Obligation. Special obligation, yeah. exactly, yeah. responsibility to keep peace on the European continent, first of all, and then maybe also to Russia. That bit was a bit less clear because then you can also wonder, well, what about Ukraine? But anyway, and then Joschka Fischer kind of did it the other way around and basically also said, you know, we have a responsibility um, for for um, uh, peace on the European continent, but but kind of came to very different policy um, decisions um, uh, based on that. So, yeah, you, you, you mentioned... Um, I've been thinking a lot about how recent German history, so basically like the last 30 years or so, especially the time since the end of the Cold War, has shaped the thinking of those of us who grew up during that time. And and by the way, of course, it, it you know, these 30 years didn't just shape the so-called millennial um, uh, generation, but of course, everyone else as well. They also lived through it. But I think for the millennials, it's most striking because it, it literally encompasses pretty much all of our, our lived um, history and lived experience. And what I just realized, you know, we had these all these 30-year anniversary um, celebrations, 2019, 2020, on the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the, the Cold War, etc. And everyone at these celebrations basically always emphasized, you know, what an extraordinary time um, the, the, the time following 1989 uh, was. And namely, there was such a such a long period of kind of geopolitical calm. Nothing much happened, you know, talking very big picture geopolitically speaking. Of course, there were 
you know, there were wars, there, there was 9-11, there was the financial crisis. I'm not saying that history um, ended, but but um, the kind of big ideological um, and geopolitical tectonic changes didn't take uh, place. And especially in Germany, we had this super long period of geopolitical calm, um, domestic uh, I don't want to say stagnation, but at least also calm. I mean, I, I knew kind of three German chancellor throughout my whole life. Like this kind of tells you like, how, how little um, political change we had domestically speaking as well. And I think my generation just really got used to that and just kind of internalized this as the normal and this kind of end of history, both in terms of events, but also the, the Fukuyama end of history, as in there are no ideological battles being fought anymore, we internalize this very much as the as the normal situation. And we just thought that it would always continue this way and that the world would kind of become more like us every every single year. And this proved to be right for a long time. You know, the 1990s and 2000s, we had all these EU enlargements and, and everyone was kind of agreeing on international law being important and economic ties being important and globalization was going to bring China in and all of this. Like this was very much in line with German thinking. And it just strikes me that this is basically over, right? I mean, this kind of liberal dream of if we just trade enough with China, they're going to come around, I think, Unfortunately, we all had to bury that um, a little while ago. Since at least 2014, if not 20, 2008, we've seen that Russia has become this this much more assertive, um, also military actor who's just pursuing interests that are different from us. Um, and so, so things are changing. But I'm not sure that that my generation we're really ready for this because our normal is very different. And we're just thinking, you know. When can we go back to the to the the normal of international law and international um, discussions and 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 what's what's happening? We're kind of lost in this and and yeah, this was the sentiment. By the way, I very much detected in me in myself as well. This is you know kind of a personal observation for me too. But um, I think this is yeah, this is the kind of background of of younger German thinking as as well. And we now have you know something between thirty and forty percent of the. MPs in the German Bundestag are from this generation. Um, Annalena Baerbock just about falls into this, this definition as well. So, you know, these are the people that are coming to power now. And I, I think it's just worth for all of us to kind of reflect on how our personal history has influenced our, our thinking. And yeah, once again, I'm afraid that we have a certain mindset that while I am sympathetic to this mindset, doesn't quite fit with the reality as we see it today and and that's that's a bit of a problem because i just don't think that putin is going to be very impressed if we tell him that we are going to talk about this at the united nations and that he's breaking international law and things like that i mean again it would be great if, if that, Naughty that boy. you know was enough but um it may not be um you're grounded vladimir <laughs> yeah, kind of all right, so you you made just the point that uh, Annalena Baerbock is a millennial, and um, she um, sees things in a specific, also German way. And I want to ask the the hard question here, sort of, um, and it's hard for me to ask it because. My first native language is German. I grew up in Germany. I worked in Germany. But I want to ask the Eastern question. So she went recently to Kiev and, as you said, quoted historical experiences when delivering the message of no lethal defensive aid. The next day, she went to Moscow and lay a wreath for um, World War II 
though arguably she could have done that in Kiev too. Help us make sense of that. Um, are Eastern European fears that Germany is not helping them against Russian aggression justified? Do Germans have a special love for Russia and consider um, Russia's um, sort of uh, acclaimed or, or um, a sphere of influence? The, the fact that Russia wants a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, do Germans consider that as justified as well? Help us make sense of that. Or, or is this the last bit of World War II guilt? Yes. So I think the World War II guilt is really important. Um, I don't so it let's put it that way the german relationship towards russia or german relationship with russia is very complex um i wouldn't say that there is a special love for russia i mean there are always kind of pockets of of people who have um certain opinions but but overall no i wouldn't i wouldn't say this um but there there are kind of competing elements or just kind of elements that make this relationship um quite uh, quite tricky. So the first is the historical um, bits. Um, there is a huge element. So, so World War II really looms extremely large in German politics and German foreign policy um, to this day. There is definitely, I mean, this whole kind of more, more pacifist mindset that Germans ha tend to have goes back to the fact that we kind of have learned from history, have learned from the 20th century that, that you know, war is never a solution, that the military is evil. Like, you know, there, there's really this effort of trying to learn from history in the best um, possible way. And, and so there's definitely an element of guilt towards not specifically Russia, but also Russia. But, but I'm, I always want to say the world or at least, you know, Europe. And this is why Germany always tries to go yeah emphasizes um de-escalation and de-emphasizes the importance of um of military power and and all of this and of course you know a big part of the second world war did play in russia and lots of russians or indeed soviets um died in the second world war ukrainians are of course pointing out that many of those were in fact ukrainians but but that doesn't make it less true that there were also um, Russians and a lot of kind of atrocities were committed by the Wehrmacht in, in Russia and kind of Eastern Europe in general. So there's the, there's the guilt element. There's also the gratitude element um, after, after um, the Cold War that, you know, the Cold War ended largely bloodless, that Germany was allowed to reunify, that this reunification worked out the way it did. So there's there's this kind of, you know, um, historical gratitude element um, as well. Then you have the economic links. Um, a, just kind of general economic links because these countries are close to each other and so there is a, you know, re um, reasonable amount of, of just general import-export going on. Gas, of course, here is particularly important. Um, so so the, the, num the exact numbers are a bit tricky, but somewhere between you know, like 30 to 50, 55% of German gas comes from Russia at the moment. So there is a big dependency here. Um, and, and so there are kind of interests, economic interests um, that, that are also important to consider. And then there's just a general kind of, yeah, mindset, cultural affinity. Here it becomes a bit tricky. There are important differences between Eastern and, and East Germans and West Germans. Weirdly, not in the way that, you know, from the outside you may think. I mean, you could think that Eastern Germans would be particularly cr um, critical of Russia, having lived through Soviet, um, well, 
call it occupation or being part of, you know, however you want to frame it, but but they have their own kind of history with regard to Russia. But interestingly enough, Eastern Germans tend to be closer to Russia or kind of more sympathetic to, to a lot of the, the Russian or indeed Putin's um, thinking. So that's interesting in and of itself. Um, and you have these these so-called Putin or Russia Versteher, the kind of Putin understanders. This is this is this is a term used to describe people um, in the political realm that, yeah, seem to have a certain sympathy towards the way that that Putin is thinking and his has has been building up Russia as this important power. There aren't, you know, there aren't that. Many, but importantly, you have quite a few of those in the SPD, so in the leading German um, uh, party, which makes it much harder for Olaf Scholz to to have a kind of clear and coherent policy towards towards Russia. So you have all these really important elements, and there are some, you know, they're kind of drawing Germany in uh, in in different um, directions to some extent. What's really, really, really important, I think, to understand is that. German, the German political realm really does believe that they have a special link to Russia and important communication channels that others, other allies, the US, other Europeans do not have. And they feel that, you know, we should use those and, and preserve those. And this is one of the reasons why they don't want to go too hard, for example, on Putin, because they say, you know, if we now go all out and say, Nord Stream 2 is over, we're going to increase the sanctions even more, we're going to export weapons to Ukraine, etc. They're kind of going to cut those links. Um, I'm, I find this a bit tricky because I was actually in, in a German talk show where, where you know, the, the German side was very much kind of bringing this, this up and my reactions to that, to that um, logic was to say, well, if you have this great special link, um, why don't you use it? And if you have these great channels of communication, like why don't you use it? Because it doesn't, to me, feel like they really are using these these uh, channels of communication to the extent that, well, allegedly they they could. But um, yeah, that was a very long winded answer. But there are like there really are um, very different elements in this in this German um, Russia relationship that makes this makes this difficult. And it I I I just always want to emphasize that it really isn't mono there's no mono causality whenever i hear people saying oh the germans just want a russian gas and that's why they're like bowing to putin like that's that's just not the case yes of course the gas matters but we have imposed really strong economic sanctions within the european union the 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 most of which is is being carried by germany and they have been in place since 2014 and germany has always supported those so so it's it's not that easy and and it's not just that you know germans just love russia and therefore they don't want to stand up to them that's just not the case it really is a mix of all these elements thank you we can talk about um germany's historical experiences for another two hours but um but this has been already um helping us a lot ulrike when i um grew up i learned um in germany that the cold war ended because of engagement mm -hmm. and the natural dissolution of the soviet union right very different from here um ulrike helped us today to make sense of that um germans have their historical experience of european security which sometimes as we see 
see so often mismatches with others um, as as it does in Europe, right? Um, it remains then to be seen um, back to Scholz's visit if the United States manages to shift Berlin's understanding and rally up more of its support for the Eastern Front. And for that, stay tuned for our next episodes. From Dalibor Rohaj, Giselle Danley, and Julia Joja. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Ulrike Franke. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.